developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. The patient used to say, my doctor, my doctor. What does that mean? They have trust in that individual. But you can't trust the individual if he's always changing. And the doctor used to say, my patient. That doesn't mean a sign of possession. It means taking responsibility. So trust, responsibility, doctor-patient relationship. Today, it's Hi, this is Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Super stoked to talk to people from all walks of life who are at the top of their game doing extremely interesting and important work in the world. I talk to folks such as NASA astronauts and Navy SEALs, elite athletes, top CEOs, and today I'm going to be talking to a lifetime surgeon, emeritor professor of surgery and biomedical engineering, Henry Buchwald, MD, PhD, and a bunch of other letters. He's uh, the Owen H. and Sarah Davidson Wangenstein Chair in Experimental Surgery at the University of Minnesota, and he's a graduate of Columbia College and Columbia Medical School. He's written over 350 publications, 10 books, and his latest book is called Healthcare Upside Down, which we'll be discussing today. Dr. Buchwald, thanks so much for joining me on The Mark Devine Show. Henry, thanks for joining me today on the Mark Devine Show. I want to start just like, what were some of the forces that forged and shaped who you were, you know, your identity, your, you know, the challenges and what led you kind of into the military? And then, you know, like, I like to get a sense for your life trajectory and, and your character. What were the forces that shaped your character, family, events, challenges, those types of things? I grew up in New York City. I never liked New York City. Uh, some people just like the big city. I always wanted to get to a smaller place. And I uh, went through Columbia. Well, I was in the Bronx High School of Science, which was sort of a magnet school. And basically, in my early years, uh, I did a lot of sports. I was on the soccer team, swimming team, etc. And then Columbia College, and then Columbia Medical School. And uh, at that point... Uh, I served two years in the Air Force in Strategic Air Command and then came to Minnesota. Because Minnesota really was what I was looking for all the time. It was making a surgical training for an intelligent surgeon who wanted to do research and academia and not just be a technician. Unfortunately, at that time on the East Coast, surgeons were looked upon mostly as technicians. The internist says, cut here, cut there, do this, and then we'll take over. And I didn't like that. And I did research when I was in medical school. So I came to this extraordinary program here at the University of Minnesota under Owen Wangenstein. And instead of a five-year program, it was six or however long you wanted. And I never left. So I went through the program. Actually, I had the honor and distinction of being the first Owen Wallenstein professor when uh, Ogier Wallenstein chair 
after he had passed on, chair was endowed. I was the first Owen Longenstein chair. And uh, just this past July, I took emeritus status, and it's given me time to write. Actually, before I, I wasn't in the operating room for the last few years, but I wrote this book, Healthcare Upside Down, because of my uh, unhappiness with the current medical situation in the United States. I saw it in an era where it was much better. I saw it where we were world leaders, and all of a sudden we're not. And uh, we're faced with a lot of rhetoric. Yes, we're the greatest. We're the greatest. We're not at all. We're a little bit above a third world country in, in all the statistics. There are about 10 world statistics globally used by everybody. Mortality rate. Well, we're about at the same level as Lebanon. Who lives that could have been saved by proper therapy? We're way down. In all the individual diseases, except for cancers, we have a small edge. But everything else, heart attacks, strokes, accidents, everything else were lower than all the European nations, Australia, New Zealand, and our neighbor Canada. Mortality rates for children, infant mortality, were lowest on all these statistical parameters, except one, where we are the world leaders, and that's the cost. <laughs> we spend over 17% of our national product on health care. That's incredible. And the closest is Switzerland at 11%, and they have much better health care. How do we get so far off track? We relied on a um, business model for health care. And though I'm a concerned capitalist, I don't know if a strict business model should be running health care. And there was a tremendous fear, probably still is, in the United States about socialized medicine. Oh, terrible, terrible, socialized medicine. I don't think most Americans realize that 65% of our medicine is socialized medicine right now. VA benefits, armed forces, Medicare medical assistance, Indian services, etc. It amounts to 5% federally funded. But that's not federally funded as a magic thing out there in space. That's us. We pay taxes, and that's what funds that. The rest is private insurance companies. The CEOs of these companies are taking home $30, $40 million a year. And people in their office, the vice presidents, the vice vice presidents, the little vice presidents, they're all taking all a lot of money. So where is that money coming from? It has to be coming from the people who are subscribers to the insurance policy. Right. And could that money instead go to doing away with co-payments, doing away with uh, restricted services, doing away with all the other things that are imposed upon the payer, the patient, because the money is going to stockholders and to the CEOs and people in that category. Isn't it true also, sir, that the, um, the hospital or the system itself has been perversely incentivized to constantly ratchet up prices because of the, the relationship is with the insurance company and or the government and not the patient? You know, because you see many, many accounts of like, if you get intercede or have someone negotiate on your behalf, 
because you don't have the insurance, the insurance won't cover it, then the hospitals or the doctors always, always lower their price. And generally, it's oftentimes to like 10 or 20% of what they were going to charge the insurance company. How do you factor that in? That's not a business model that anyone thought would have made sense. Doctors cannot uh, do pro bono work. There are five federal laws that could put a doctor in jail for doing pro bono work. Can you imagine that? There are federal guidelines for what you can charge. Now, the lawyers who make up most of Congress, they can charge whatever they want, and they can do pro bono work. As a matter of fact, most law firms require 50 hours of pro bono work for each one of their partners a year or their aspiring partners. But doctors cannot do pro bono work. In my day, first of all, we never charged a fellow doctor or somebody or nurse or something. And second of all, when patients came to us and had no money, we wrote off the bill. Or put them on a payment plan. My local doctor, you know, we had a, I mean, in the 60s, I grew up in the 60s in upstate New York. There was no insurance company for us. We had a relationship with a doctor and he would do a payment plan and literally send us a bill at the end of the month. Same thing with our grocer, by the way, because this is pre-credit cards, right? You remember those days where the grocer would oh, yeah. you know, put it on your, your tab, basically, and you'd go and you'd pay at the end of the month? I mean, those days were awesome in the sense that it took a lot of the friction out of the system. All these things that are supposed to bring efficiency, these intermediaries actually really have complicated and added so much extra cost and stress to our lives. And the medical system is a good example. The other thing is in running... As a business model, first of all, when you call today, you're rarely ever going to get the physician that you once thought was your doctor. That doctor-patient relationship has been destroyed. First of all, you talk to a robot who tells you to go away and call emergency or do this or do that. And then you get another robot. And then you get an interrogator. Why are you calling, etc., and so on. And in this book, I have little stories made up stories for the most part, but somebody calls and says, I just had surgery by Dr. So-and-so, and I'm bleeding. And the interrogator says, uh, well, how long have you been bleeding? But before we can do that, what is your insurance? And so finally, when they get around to the patient, usually the person says, well, you can see Dr. So-and-so in three months. And the patient would say, well, I'm bleeding now. Well, then we can have you come in in a few days to see Dr. So-and-so. Why? Because maybe the doctor who operated on the patient is very popular, and you've got to keep him in the operating room making money, whereas some other doctor is young or is not popular or isn't so good, and he has a slot to fill, and so you fill his slot. I mean, that's the way a business is run, but that's not the way medicine should be run. And the other thing is, actually, before I stopped seeing patients, the clinic said, uh, we have you scheduled 15 minutes per patient. And I said, that makes no sense at all. A post-op patient will take me five minutes. How are you doing, et cetera, and so on, CN3. But a new patient with problems, I have to spend more than 15 minutes. But it's a business model where doctors are interchangeable, where you may have a surgeon operate on you, but if there's a problem at night, there's another doctor or hospitalist who will take care of you. Nobody ever feels anymore that they have a doctor-patient relationship. And it's accepted. And I was hoping that 
maybe calling attention to this, people will realize they wouldn't accept this in any other venue. I mean, would you, if you wanted to take your kids to the ball game, and you call and say, I want a couple of tickets, and says, yes, we'll give you the ticket for the date we want you to come, for the team we want you to see, and for the seats we'll assign you. You wouldn't buy the tickets. I still think that on the everyday level, the people who are administering health care are good people. Sure. It's just a system they're in that may make them maybe insensitive. I mean, it works the same uh, both ways. You know, if the patient doesn't feel they have a doctor, the patient used to say, my doctor, my doctor. What does that mean? They have trust in that individual. But you can't trust the individual if he's always changing. And the doctor used to say, my patient. That doesn't mean a sign of possession. It means taking responsibility. So trust, responsibility, doctor-patient relationship. Today, it's gone. And we have a huge shortage of nurses, and we have apparently doctors who are saying, you know what, I can't make money doing this, or I don't like this environment, or this whole system is not my thing anymore. So what are we going to do about that? Right. So not only do we have a broken system, but if all of a sudden the professionals flood out of the system, right, we won't have a medical system left. Maybe they're realizing that this doctor-patient relationship or doctor or patient-nurse relationship has been broken. And... Uh, they no longer have that satisfaction of feeling that this is a calling. This is what I do, and I make a difference. We used to work all sorts of hours when I was a surgeon. Many a time, when one of my children had an athletic event, I would get there just in time. My wife would hand me a sandwich. That was dinner. But it was, it was my life. It was my calling. And if you don't have that relationship, and also now administration will dictate to doctors, you can't use this drug because it's too expensive. You shouldn't do the surgery because it keeps the patient in the hospital too long. Today, administrators of hospitals would love to get patients in because that first day is a moneymaker. You get all sorts of labs, you get x-rays, you do this, maybe you do a procedure, but then they want to get them out because the next few days they're just lying there in pain. That's no sense of doing anything for the patient. Tell them their pain is minimal and go home so that you can take another patient in and do x-rays, etc., and so on. So that's really the business reason behind a lot of today's come into the hospital and we'll do all the tests or do it as an outpatient. And then we want to have you out of the hospital as soon as possible. Things have to change or should change. I don't know if they have to or will. What's your vision, like on both at a business model level and also at a societal level? Like how do we move forward and, and begin to improve this disaster? I have 10 ideas in the back of my book. Before we go into that for a minute, in no way am I advocating socialized medicine. I mean, it works in some countries, especially with a uniform population and small size, it works very well. But I don't think it'll work in our country. And in so many countries, it isn't working at all. I now have a good friend, a fellow physician in England, who needs a knee replacement. And he's going to pay for it out of pocket because of the health plan, it would take two years to get the quota system. Socialized medicine is not an answer. 
And if I say that today's system of business model insurance medicine is not an answer, what is an answer? Well, I think it's uh, insurance through fraternal organizations. You, I'm sure, as I, belong to the USAA Insurance, right? That's correct. I mean, it's our group. We're a fraternity, and it's a great organization, and it gives great insurance coverage. And the head people and the board of directors don't take home 70, 60, 40, 50 million a year. And the country is full of these organizations. There's the United Postal Workers. They have millions. The Longshore, they got millions. And instead of buying into what's available today, it would be a wonderful thing for an entrepreneur, a real capitalist, to say, I can give you more for less, and I can make a deal with the postal workers with summer. So I think that's one way of maybe solving the problem is fraternal organizations getting together because then they're serving themselves. It's a sort of health insurance. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. I think you are starting to see some of these pop up. You know, it's like the, the resurrection of the old guild concept, right? Where the guild takes care of their members in multidimensionally. So it's not just healthcare, but also maybe help them with education, can help them with childcare. You could even have corporations, you know, so you're starting to see corporations be more involved instead of just sloughing off healthcare and saying, well, we don't have to provide insurance because there's the Obamacare plan or, or the Affordable Care Act actually leaning in the other direction, right, in providing health services. Also, faith-based organizations are starting to provide member-based supported health services. There's also new, uh, those that are popping up that are crowdfunded. If I don't have the money for my, my surgery, then I put my issue out to the crowd. The crowd comes together and those who are sensitive to my cause help fund me. And then, you know, in the future, I'm there to fund them if they have an issue. Those are actually pretty effective too. So it's, it's interesting to see these things starting to pop up to your point. And I think these are really interesting solutions. It'd be nice to, it'd be nice if the government didn't go like, oh, those are a threat to our single payer system. And the other thing is right now in the current system of insurance outside of the government supported insurance, people, let's say, work for a big corporation and the corporation gives them health insurance. And so there's two levels of bargaining going on. They go to a health insurance company and they say, no, well, we can give it to you that much cheaper if you don't do obesity surgery. And the owner of the corporation says, well, all right. And he goes to the union and says, your union contribution could be less if we don't do obesity surgery. At that point, that union, that fraternity has to say no. Some of our patients, some of our members may need obesity surgery and we'll pay a little more or whatever. So again, it gets down to not accepting a bargain price by the fraternity themselves who is going to be impacted. I'm certain that if the leadership of that corporation needs obesity surgery, they'll go get it. So right within the current system, 
of people in a corporation getting health care and bargaining with an insurance company, if the people themselves get together, individuals cannot do it. The individual will be trampled. I've seen people stand up for this kind of stuff, they're trampled. But if, let's say, a whole union says, hey, listen, we want this, we want this, you say it's going to cost more? All right, it'll cost more, but that's what we want. So what are some of the other ideas you have? Um, because I, this is such a multidimensional problem. Trust in your fraternal organizations, and there's so many of them. Bargain with knowledge. And again, stay within the group. Because, you know, you can go out by yourself. You're not going to accomplish anything. And obtain knowledge. Realize that the large percentage, I forgot the exact number, of the Fortune 500 companies are in healthcare. So that means they're making the most money. And the money should be going to the healthcare. Why are people putting up with this? Well, ignorance. They don't know any better. And fear. They're afraid that, oh my God, if I make waves, I'm going to lose it when I really need it. People just don't like to move forward. Well, they, like you said, individuals don't feel like they have a voice. You know, but if they could find, you know, look in, in their environment, if, who is the, the power structure and work within that power structure, whether it's your corporation or your labor union or your church or networks. And, you know, it's like, we don't have to be a labor union to be a collective bargaining unit. The whole communities could come together and be a collective bargaining unit. And I think that's your point. It doesn't sound like you have a lot of hope that government is going to solve this issue. Yes, they can solve the issue with law. But again, most politicians, when they get into office, start running for the next term. And they get the next term by getting the majority votes. So if a community comes forth and says to their local congressman, senator, governor, etc., we want this, they'll do it. Because if their opponent says, we want this, and I'll give it to you, they'll vote for the opponent. I can tell you on what little things sometimes elections are based on. I was in Sweden many, many years ago when they were thinking of joining the European Union. And I was there as a visiting professor. And I asked uh, one of my colleagues, how is he going to go? And they said, well, there's about 48% for and 48% against, and at least 4% in the middle, and that's up to the whales. And I said, what do you mean it's up to the whales? And he says, well, it's the Green Party. The party that gives them the most whales, they'll vote for. And so that was the basis of their election. It's a model in the sense your representatives will vote for what the people tell them to vote. And if there's a party that represents better health care, they can do a lot, especially, let's say, in parliamentary countries. We're not a parliamentary country, but a small group is needed for a coalition. But in our country, today, nobody works across the aisle. Republicans work against Democrats, Democrats work against Republicans. I agree. And, and you can't fix health care with ideology, right? You have to have practical solutions and you have to look at it from an integral or holistic perspective because there's many moving parts and some things that need to be changed are anathema to one side and other things that need to be changed are anathema to the other side. So what? Let's, you know, come together and solve it because it's, it's not only killing people and frustrating people, but it's bleeding the nation. Like you said, 70% of our GDP. So 
that's insane. And you add the, the debt on top of that, the debt service that's growing and growing. And then there are all these other entitlements. This country's in a, in a tough place financially in the next five to 10 years. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So any other big takeaways uh, from the book that you we haven't talked about or you'd, you'd like to share with the listeners? You know, I try to inject some humor. I start each chapter with a little story and a quote. I think my first chapter is the statistics. This isn't just my opinion. I backed it up with numbers, and people don't know these numbers. They say, oh, we're number one. You're not number one. You wait on the list. That's the first thing. And then there's a chapter which is interesting, I think, because it shows that before things change, the language changes. Orwell, in his book 1984, knew how important language was. I mean, today, I am no longer a doctor. I'm a provider. You're no longer a patient. You know what you are? Or everybody else who goes to a doctor? You're a client. That's the language that's used. And when I was still seeing patients, my service or my station or where I had my surgery patient was now called the firm. Your patient is on firm A, and you are the provider, and this is the name of your client. And when you accept these terms, you are on the road for accepting a depersonalized medical system where the doctor-patient relationship is asunder. It's gone. Can I read you the last two paragraphs of my book? Sure. Yeah, please do. That'd be great. The opening moment of life, birth, involves health care for mother and child. Growing up and achieving adulthood involves health care. Being able to live a mature life, to work, to love, to have children, is dependent on health care. And the final chapter, aging, can be realized and even made pleasurable by health care. Health care is therefore integral to life from beginning to end. Health care is not a commodity, but a necessity. Health care needs to be treated with respect. The establishment, practice, and financing of health care affect everyone, should not be neglected by anyone, and must be the concern of all of us. I have been a doctor for 60 years, and during those years at times I've also been a patient. I've held the hands of my patients. I've been the one whose hand has been held. I've received trust and given trust. The therapeutic decisions my patients and I reached were not subject to the interdiction of a third party. I do not want to have my life's role as a physician and surgeon, my joy in the process, usurped by an administocracy. As a patient, I do not want to hold hands with a robot and confine my health problems to a faceless entity. As a doctor, a patient, a person, I reject the currently shattered doctor-patient relationship. Healthcare is upside down. Let us set it right side up. Well, thank you so much for your contribution to this important discussion. It's uh, got to have the conversation and the people have to take charge. Yeah, don't just outsource such an important aspect of your life to these mega corporations and insurance companies and the government, right? So let's help direct the recovery of this, this, uh, this system. And, you know, part of that for me is also 
bringing more and more attention to wellness. Absolutely. Right? So that you avoid the the hospital <laughs> more often than not. Part of the narrative in this country is, you know, you get sick and the go-to is to go to the doctor or the hospital. And I, for me in my community, my go-to is to not get sick, to develop a strong immune system through healthy habits, you know, a lot of good sleep, exercising every day, eating, you know, a lean diet, paleo-centric kind of diet, getting tons of time in nature, using practices like breathing and, you know, effective communication for stress release, being more present with your wife and kids, you know, just like really normal natural stuff, which we didn't have to worry about when we were growing up because things were like moving a lot slower. We didn't have the distractions of of social media and the constant barrage of negative 24-7 news. And, you know, we spent time around the dinner table with our families. Anyways, our culture has, has separated and, and fragmented people and driven them into a sick care culture as opposed to a wellness culture. So, so this is a two-part problem, right? Is people are getting sicker and more obese because the narrative has been pushing them toward unwell practices and habits. While simultaneously, the medical system has become utterly bloated, like you said, and, and is, isn't serving people very, very well. So it's a big problem. You said it beautifully. Ah, thank you. Well, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from you today. So there you go. Can I put you down as a co-author of the book? <laughs> no, I don't want to take any of that glory. Healthcare upside down. Do you have a, a place you like people to come to learn more about you or do you just send them to Amazon or what's your... Preference. Well, I have a website. Just look up my name. There are several other podcasts on that too. Great. You can find stuff about me on Google. So, is the website exactly your name, Harry Bootwald? Yeah. Okay. I think I like people to to read the book. I I, I didn't write it to make money. I, I wrote it to educate. I'm an academic. It's my role. I'm an educator and. I've spent my life in the joy of medicine. It's been my calling. And so I felt at my older years, my calling is not complete if I just don't say anything. And then seeing that I've seen so much and can document it as an academic, as a researcher, I believe you just don't say things. You show the data for it. What's been the reaction from your peers? In the medical profession. You know, they all say you did a wonderful job, Henry, but so what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if I did a wonderful job, things will change. Let's hope so. Well, Dr. Bergewald, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for your contribution with your book, Healthcare Upside Down, and your many years of service as a medical professional and surgeon. Thank you ever so much for having me, and thank you for your years of service as a CEO. Appreciate that. I believe in saying thank you for service for people who have served. Thank you. Me too. And we will pay it forward to those who are still serving because they're the ones in danger right yes, now. Yes, absolutely. All right. Take care. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye now. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was important information. I mean, our healthcare industry is extremely broken. It's a kind of a sad state of affairs that our healthcare is worse than Lebanon's and some many third world countries. And uh, it doesn't seem like there's any momentum to fix it. So we've got to start having this dialogue. Dr. Buchwald's book, Healthcare Upside Down, can provide you some firepower to have sound conversations. So get the book, do your research, and let's start agitating for some change.
Show notes will be up on markdevine.com. Video will be up on my YouTube channel. You can reach me on Twitter at markdevine and on Instagram and Facebook at realmarkdevine. Send me ideas on guests and anything else you want to shout out to me. If you're not on my newsletter email list, then go to markdevine.com to subscribe. It comes out every Tuesday. It's called Divine Inspiration. I have a brief synopsis of the week's podcast, give you an idea whether you want to watch it or listen to it or not. I have my blog and a book I'm reading and also a practice and some other interesting things that come across my life. And also we profile some of our sponsors. So check it out and subscribe at markdevine.com. Thank you so much for my great team, Catherine Devine, my stepdaughter, and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell, who help produce the podcast and the newsletter and bring guests to you every week. Please review and rate the show wherever you listen. It helps us to maintain our top rating. So we get noticed and we stay relevant. So wherever you listen, Amazon, Spotify, please consider going and rating and reviewing. I appreciate that very much. And thank you for listening to the Mark Divine Show. Please share it with your friends. And thank you for doing the work to be part of the positive change that we expect to see in the world because we are doing that work. Till next time, this is Mark Divine. See you then. Yeah. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.